Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Evil Olive, The Cowden Family Murders. Today's episode deals with crimes committed against a child. It will not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is highly advised. Oregon is a place that has many different types of landscapes, deserts, forests, lakes, oceans, and mountains. It is perfect for families to enjoy the outdoors and to be part of nature in the most organic way. As a child, I remember camping in the woods with my family, and they are my fondest memories. Sitting by the crackling fire and feeling its warmth, walking through the trails early in the morning and smelling the fresh dew that encased the forest. I was in a new world, one that had not been tainted by man. Everything was as it needed to be and as it should be. The crisp, cool air filled my lungs with each breath I took, and with every exhale, I could see my breath in the air like smoke. I never thought something could ruin these memories for me. That was until I read the case of the Cowden family massacre. How could a peaceful camping trip turn into something so brutal? I realized that even in a place of peace and happiness, darkness can always linger. Connecting Oregon and California is the historical Siskiyou Pass that for centuries was the main transportation route and still is today between the two states. Even centuries ago, it was a dangerous route to cross. There were transients looking to steal and rob, Indian tribes that were willing to defend their land and families to the death, and people that got on trains and robbed them as well. It was used by wagons, stagecoaches, and later on, vehicles. Now there is a federal highway that is labeled I-5 that connects the two states. The pass, although dangerous in its day, many found the area to be peaceful. It was and still is surrounded by multiple ecosystems, the marvelous old growth of the redwood trees, and there are trees as far as you can see. The Siskiyou Mountains were a place to be enjoyed by families, nature lovers, and nature enthusiasts. There are camping areas, lakes, rivers, and countless trails. One particular place is Carberry Creek in Copper, Oregon, which is located about one mile north of the Oregon-California border. It was a copper mining town. That is how it got its name. The Carberry Campground was a beautiful place to be with the family. It was located near the Carberry Creek and to the Applegate Lake that was great for swimming. 
it was a perfect place to spend time in the natural beauty and wonder that Oregon has to offer. Except for the Cowden family. Richard Cowden was married to Belinda Cowden and lived in White City, Oregon, a small town just nine miles north of Medford, Oregon. Richard was a logging trucker, and Belinda was a stay-at-home mom. On August 30, 1974, Richard and Belinda and their two children, five-year-old David and five-month-old Melissa and their little basset hound dog named Droopy, decided to pack up and go on a last-minute camping trip together for the Labor Day weekend. They packed up their tent, their sleeping bags, food, and all the supplies that they would need. They loaded up all of their belongings into their 1956 Ford pickup truck and headed to Carberry Campground. It was going to be a quick trip. They only planned on spending one night there, and the next day on their way home, they would stop by Belinda's mother's house for dinner. When they arrived, they set up their tent, unpacked their things, and enjoyed the natural beauty that surrounded them. It was a wonderful trip at first for the Cowden family. When night fell, the Cowdens and their dog Droopy went to bed. By the next morning, they all woke up and Richard and his son David went to the Copper General Store to buy milk at around 9 a.m. This was the last time anyone would see the Cowden family alive. When day had turned to night, Belinda's mother started to worry about her daughter and her family. They were supposed to arrive for dinner on their way home back from camping, but they never showed up. Belinda's mother only lived a mile away from where her daughter and her family were camping, so she decided to drive to see if everything was all right. As she drove through the campground, she saw the 1956 Ford pickup truck and pulled in. However, the campground was quiet. No one was around. As the grandmother continued to look, she saw a plastic dish pan with cold water in it that was used to wash dishes. As she continued to walk through the campsite, she saw her son-in-law Richard's wristwatch and wallet on the ground. When she picked up the wallet, it had $21 in it, which today would be equivalent to nearly $110. She saw a pack of cigarettes that her daughter smoked on the ground and they were opened. She went back to the truck and looked inside and saw that their clothes and bathing suits were still all inside of it. Where had her daughter and son-in-law and grandchildren gone? She looked around more, but could not find any trace of them. She also could not find any trace of their dog Droopy, the little basset hound that they took with them. Knowing that her daughter had a five-month-old baby, they couldn't have gone far. They should be back soon. But the family never returned. The grandmother left and reported her daughter and grandchildren and son-in-law missing, 
When the grandmother explained to the police what she found and saw at the campsite, the police had no reason to suspect that anything violent had happened. Therefore, since it was turning night, they decided to head out first thing in the morning the next day. A mistake that will forever haunt the officers on this case. The police arrived the next day to search for the family. The state trooper, Officer Erickson, walked onto the scene and said this, quote, That camp was really spooky. Even the milk was still on the table. End quote. The officers searched but could not find the family anywhere. Eventually, they were able to locate Droopy, the family's basset hound. Droopy had managed to walk to the Copper General store, the same one where Richard and his son went to buy milk. Droopy was heard scratching at the front door and was rescued. Was he tracking his owners? Did he follow their scent to the store trying to find them? Where was the family? After a couple days of searching and with no evidence of where the family could have gone, police reached out to state police, the Explorer Scouts, the United States Forest Service, and the Oregon National Guard to assist in the location of the Cowden family. It became the largest search in Oregon's history. There were helicopters, hundreds of volunteers and dogs that combed through the surrounding trails and roads. Even planes with infrared technology were used to see if any earth was disturbed. However, their search efforts proved fruitless. Nothing of the family was found, nor any evidence of any crime. Richard and Belinda had no debt. The family was happy and they had no known enemies. It was highly unlikely that they just disappeared. But the police had no other evidence to go off. There were no bodies at the lake, so no accidental drowning. That was ruled out. It was as if the family vanished into thin air. As the search efforts continued, summer was turning into the fall and the hunting season was around the corner. Richard's sister made a plea in the Medford Mail Tribune to all the hunters to look out for any sign of her brother, his wife, and their children. She also asked if they could check any fresh dirt that was turned over to see if her family was buried in the forest somewhere. Sadly, no hunters found anything that season. Jackson County Police, along with the Oregon State Police, interviewed and questioned over 150 individuals to try and locate the Cowden family. They also put out a $2,000 reward in exchange for any information regarding the family and their disappearance. By the winter, they were still unable to locate 28-year-old Richard 22-year-old Belinda, 5-year-old David, and their 5-month-old baby, Melissa. 
They had over 200 leads that came into the department, but none that were promising. Many called in and stated that it could be the work of the serial killer, Ted Bundy, but that was quickly dismissed and ruled out. Months had gone by. It was now April 12, 1975, seven months after the disappearances of the Cowden family. Two gold prospectors were hiking in the woods near Carberry Creek when they came across something horrifying. It was the badly decomposing remains of a human that was tied to a tree on the top of a hillside. The two men informed the police, and when the police came out to investigate the scene, they couldn't believe what they found. When they arrived on the scene, they found the same thing that the men had described. The man was tied to a tree that was on the side of a very steep hill. They soon realized that they were only seven miles away from where the Cowden family had been camping the day of their disappearance. They quickly connected the murder scene to the family and started their search efforts all over again. As they searched, they came across a small cave that was near where the man was bound and dead to the tree. The police did not expect to find what they did. Inside the cave were the decomposing bodies of a female, a young child, and an infant. It was at this moment the police knew they had found the Cowden family. Due to the decomposition of the bodies, they had to be identified by dental records. After the bodies were carefully removed and taken to the coroner, they were positively identified as Richard, Belinda, David, and baby Melissa. After the autopsies were completed, it was determined that Belinda and her son were both killed by a gunshot wound to the head from a 22 caliber bullet. Baby Melissa had blunt force trauma to the head, and the cause of death for Richard could not be determined. But it was believed that Richard did die where his body was found, tied to the tree. After investigations, the police believed that Belinda and the two children were not killed in the cave, but elsewhere, and then transported to the cave for concealment. This was also verified by a man from Grant's Pass, who was volunteering in the initial search efforts, who stated that he had already searched that cave and there were no bodies in it. The police wanted to make sure that it was the same cave and made the individual take them directly to the area that he and others searched, and to their surprise, it was the exact same cave where the bodies were found. Although the family was found, there were still more questions than answers. One thing that was for certain, the suspect had to be local. The place where the cave was, was not known to just anyone. It was a small town, and the only people that knew about the cave were the ones who lived there. They knew they had to start looking from within the community. The police went through their reports, 
and saw that a family from Los Angeles had came up to the campground the same day that the Cowdens did. When they were walking around, they saw two men and a woman in a pickup truck. When they were walking by it, the individuals in the truck almost looked irritated and that they wanted the family to hurry along, almost like they were waiting for them to leave. The Los Angeles family said it made them nervous, but they just left and never thought about it until the day the Cowden family went missing. As police combed through more records, they came across the name Dwayne Lee Little, who was a resident of Rook, Oregon, located just 27 miles north of Copper. Three months before the Cowdens disappeared, Dwayne Lee Little was paroled from the Oregon State Penitentiary for a rape he had committed when he was 16 years old. He returned to his home in Rook, Oregon with his parents. It was soon discovered that he and his parents frequented the area of Copper to camp and did in fact on the weekend the Cowdens went missing. When the Littles were confronted with this evidence, they claimed they were not near the Carberry Creek or the campground during the disappearances. But that turned out to be a lie. The police realized that the description of the truck that the Los Angeles family saw near the Carberry Creek that day the Cowdens went missing matched the exact truck that the Littles owned at the time. It was presumed that the two men in the car were Dwayne Little and his father, and the woman was his mother. However, the Littles still denied being there. The police investigated it further, since they only had that one family as a witness. As they investigated, they found out that on Monday, September 2nd, 1974, the Littles went to a cabin that they rented near the Carberry Creek campground and signed the guest book. The police now had evidence putting the Littles at the scene of the Cowden's disappearances, but they still did not have the murder weapon or any other evidence to go off of. It was all circumstantial. The family was devastated when the bodies were found. They could not believe the manner in which they were killed and that they were never going to be coming back. It affected Richard Cowden's father so much that he committed suicide a few months after the bodies were found. The police initially thought this to be strange. Maybe he had something to do with their disappearances, but they were able to clear him of any involvement with the murders. By Christmas of that year in 1974, three months after the disappearances of the Cowden family, Dwayne Little was seen with a 22 caliber gun by his girlfriend at the time. His girlfriend reported this to the police and Little's parole was revoked for being in possession of a firearm and was sent back to prison. He was again paroled in April 1977 and in June of that year, just two months after his release, a pregnant woman named Margie Hunter was stranded in Portland, Oregon because her car had broken down. Dwayne Little saw her 
and offered her a ride. Once Margie got into the car with Dwayne, she regretted it. Dwayne Little had sexually assaulted her and beat her to near death. Margie was able to escape with her life and the life of her unborn child. Little was caught and charged and convicted of attempted homicide and sentenced to three consecutive life sentences in prison. While Little was in prison, he refused to cooperate with the mental health treatments and to talk about the murders that he was possibly accused of. The police still had no evidence to link Little to the murders of the Cowden family. However, after Little was in prison, his cellmate, Floyd Forsberg, who shared a cell with him at one time, stated Little did admit to the murders of the Cowden family. Still, there was only circumstantial evidence to link him to the murders, nothing more. He was never charged in their murders. The Cowden family massacre is still labeled as one of Oregon's most bizarre and unsolved murders to this day. The case is still open and Dwayne Little remains the number one suspect in the Cowden murders. If anyone has information about the murders or disappearances of the Cowden family, please call the Jackson County Police. Thank you for listening. Take care. Until next time.